The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I, come, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come, to me with the, come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the youngest men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son and a young goat oh, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Bonnie. Well, let's pray. Bonnie, your Bible. There you go. <laughs> let's pray together as we uh, ask the Lord to teach us today. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us. Um, God, there is, there is nowhere we can go to flee your presence. We could make our bed in the depths and still you are there. We could go to the highest of heights and still you are there with us. And, um, and so, Lord, we, we can know with confidence that surely you are with us today. And, um, and God, we know that you care for us and, uh, and you delight in your people. And so, Lord, we, we, just, we, we ask for your help today. We know that we need you. Um, God, so often we even sometimes come to your word or come to church, and if we're, if we're real, we don't even want to hear from you. We're just kind of going through the motions. And so, Lord, if that's, if that's us today, I pray that you just stop us right where we are. Um, 
that you would give our hearts pause, that we might um, just be stopped in our tracks and, and look at you and see your face and hear your voice. Because God, it is what we need. Um, and so God, would you do that for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you are aware of this, I'm assuming you are, but over the last year, uh, the stock market has been a wild thing. Um, maybe you're aware of this. Maybe you don't watch the stock market at all, but it has been a nutty place. Um, and there have been two very unlikely stocks over the, probably just in the last six months that have boomed, that have seemingly made no sense. And if, you've, if you follow the news at all, you may have seen them and you probably know these two, but the two are GameStop, which is a video game retail store, and AMC, the movie theater company. These stocks have boomed over the last six months. But if you looked at these stocks six months ago and tried to discern whether this was a good investment for you, you would have just overwhelmingly concluded no way. Because as you look at these two companies, they, they shared these similarities that their earnings were way down. A lot of people viewed their business model as just poor, just not very good, um, especially in light of, you know, you, retail stores, well, there's street streaming uh, services that are happening. So movie theaters, people are going to movie theaters less. Heck, heck, they're closed right now. So streaming services are available. People are downloading video games online. They don't need to go to a store. There was just all these factors that, that factored into where if anyone that was wise in investing looked at these companies, they would conclude not a great investment. Like lots of other ways to make money, lots of other better companies to invest in. This is just not a smart choice. You should probably look elsewhere. But if you had invested into game, let's just say you happen to have $1,000 lying around. Maybe you took some stimulus and you're like, hey, I want to invest it. I want to make some money. If you had invested $1,000 into GameStop in January, at the beginning of January, well, one month later, you would have had $20,000. You would have turned that $1,000 into twenty grand in a month. <laughs> Crazy. Or if you had invested $1,000 in AMC, you're just like, I just believe in AMC. <laughs> Even though they're closed. At the beginning of the year today you would have about $35,000, okay? That's great. Like, that doesn't happen, right? That doesn't happen in, in the stock market world that fast, okay? That just doesn't happen. But it did. And maybe it's going to keep happening more, but it made people, a lot of people rich. And we, we could probably list a few more of these because this has happened a lot in the last few months. But two very unlikely choices that made people really rich. What makes something an unlikely choice is that Every, when we look at it, everything that we see with our eyes tells us that we shouldn't expect very much from something. That's what makes something an unlikely choice, right? We look at it and what we see, what we understand from observing it makes it seem like, I oh, shouldn't expect very much from this. But God loves unlikely choices. He loves it. And we see that so clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 16 today. This chapter begins with Samuel grieving over Saul. And it seems like he's been grieving for a really long time. We don't know exactly how long, but Saul is mourning. And he's been mourning for a while. And God comes to Saul and he's basically like, dude, it's time to get up. All right, like you've been, you've been mourning too long. It's time to go. God's ready to do something new. And so he comes to Samuel in his mourning and his grieving, which was good. He was grieving over the king of Israel being evil and not following the word of the Lord. And God comes to him, he's like, all right, Samuel, it's time. I'm ready to do a new thing. I'm ready to turn the page to something different. So it's time to stop mourning and it's time to go. 
And he's calling Samuel to finish his work. This is going to be about the last time almost that we see Samuel. But he's calling Samuel to finish his work, and it's been a rough journey for Samuel. He's been seemingly, from what we're told, just very faithful to the Lord from a young age. Kind of been this this bright light in the midst of a really dark time. And yet he's been met with just rejection from the people of Israel. They would have rather had Saul over him. It's been a rough journey for a guy like Samuel. And now he's coming to the end of his work and he's he's here mourning because seemingly all, all of his work has led Israel to just a place of depravity. But I think what's really beautiful is God is going to allow Samuel to finish his work and he's going to do it in a really sweet way. And he comes to Samuel and says, it's time to go anoint a new king. So stop your mourning. Let's go finish the job. And I know it's, le- it's not as patronizing as this, but I kind of view this as like this moment of like a father or a mother and a, and a child who's like just down in the dumps and sad. And the parent kind of turns to the kid of like, what do you say we go get some ice cream? Right? And that kid's face just immediately goes from this to ice cream. Yeah, let's go. Come on. I kind of view that as like this moment between God and Samuel of like, hey, Samuel. You want to go anoint a new king? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Come on. And that's exactly what God's going to do through, through Samuel. So he tells him, fill your horn with oil. Get it ready. Let's go anoint a new king. I've got somebody to replace Saul, a better king. And this one is going to be God's choice. Not going to be the one that the people would have chosen, the kind of king that the people asked for. They asked for a king like the nations. That's exactly what they got. This time, God's going to choose who it is. And he he actually specifically says these things. He says, I have provided for myself a king. Anoint for me him whom I declare to you. This is God's choosing. This is going to be God's king. And it's going to be for him and also for the people. But it's going to be himself choosing this king. And so Samuel goes with his horn of oil all filled up, and I imagine as Samuel's going, he's, he's picturing like, okay, what's this guy going to look like? What's this king going to be like? I know Saul was like tall and handsome. Maybe, maybe this one's going to be even taller or maybe shorter. I don't know. What's he, maybe he's going to be more handsome. Maybe he's going to be an even better warrior and, and even stronger. Surely he's going to be like somebody that the people can respect. I think, but maybe not. Surely he's going to be somebody that like obeys the word because I know Saul didn't do that. But how do I know what that looks like when I get there? And I just kind of picture Saul carrying his oil in, ho- in, a, in a horn over his shoulder, just like thinking about what this new king is going to look like. And he comes to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And if you've been reading your Bible chronologically, you will have read the book of Ruth, which introduces us to Jesse, who tells us that Jesse would be the grandfather or the father of David. So you, if, you're, if you're reading your Bibles along, you hear the name Jesse in Bethlehem and you're like, oh, something's happening here. And so Samuel goes before Jesse and he wants to to see all of his sons. And as Jesse brings the firstborn son, Samuel looks at him. He's like, oh, yes, look at this guy. This guy is surely, he is the one. Look, I mean, he's impressive. Maybe more handsome than Saul. Like looks really good. Surely the Lord's anointed is standing before me. He thinks he's the one, but God says something in verse seven, maybe one of the most important verses in all of scripture about who God is. 
The Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's not, not seemingly anything specifically wrong with Eliab, but just that this wasn't the one that the Lord was going to choose. And, and God was telling Samuel, and he's telling us, that the way God chooses is different from the way that we choose. No one chooses like God chooses. Because he doesn't choose based off of impressiveness, or stature, or talent, or giftings, or beauty, or power. God does not choose based off of impressiveness. He actually also doesn't choose based off of unimpressiveness either. It's not like just because someone's unimpressive, therefore God will then choose them. No, God does not choose based off of anything that you and I can see. His choosing doesn't work like our choosing. In fact, as we read the scriptures, we are met with this time and time again that God chooses because he chooses. God chooses because he chooses. That's who he is. It's, it's what he does. He, he chooses those that he chooses to choose. That's what Romans 9 says. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9. He says this. On the screens, ready, set, go. Lag. There it is. Okay. For he says to Moses, this is uh, Paul telling us, this is what God says to Moses, which is what he did say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion or on impressiveness or on stature or on strength or on gifting or on earning, but on God who has mercy. God chooses because he chooses, and he chooses to choose those because that's who he chose to choose. It's kind of like a Dr. Seuss book or something. And so son after son comes before Samuel, and it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. Finally, he comes to the end and says, the Lord has not chosen these. And I wonder if Samuel's confused. And so he asks Jesse, is this, are these all of your sons? Jesse says, well, no, there's the youngest, the, the shepherd, the little boy, the, the small kid who was not even thought to be important to bring there. The father didn't even consider that David was remotely important to be there. If your father doesn't even think that you're important to be there, who else is going to think so? He's the shepherd. He's with the sheep doing the job that was unimportant compared to the real jobs. He's out in the fields. And just a side note, remember when we met King Saul, he was a shepherd who couldn't find his donkeys. And when we're introduced to David, we're introduced to a shepherd who's with his sheep. He's a good shepherd. That's a little foreshadowing for us. He's not even thought important to be there. So that's how unlikely David was to even be considered for a role like this. It might help us to maybe even just kind of transport our minds to think um, if, if the, the CEO position of Apple suddenly came open, right? And they were looking for who's going to be the next person. 
Right? We would have all these expectations of, of the qualifications that should be in place for a person like this. It should be someone that knows technology and has experience and, and has innovation and vision to move forward. And like we would have all these qualifications in place for who could play a role like that. Or if it was president, we would have all these expectations. It needs to be someone who's done this, experienced this, uh, you know, seen this or taken part in this before. And we would have expectation of, of who that next person should be. And it was the same for the king, a, a king of a nation. There were so many expectations that the father, Jesse, thinks Jesse's, or his, David isn't even in the, it's not even in like the rem, remote possibility of his brain that David is the one qualified to do this. And so he brings David before him. And God tells Samuel, arise, anoint him. He's the one. This is him. The teenage shepherd boy. The short, young, small, unimportant boy. He's the next king of Israel. And actually the, net, the, the one on whom the Messiah's throne would, we, would be built upon. But in this, God shows us something about his heart, that he loves unlikely choices. God loves to use the lowly, the weak, the unimpressive people. He loves to do that. In fact, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've, you've almost just come to expect that God chooses the unlikely. So the unlikely almost in our minds start to become the likely choice, right? We, we just start to understand this is just what God does. He loves to choose the lowly and the unlikely. We've seen it since the beginning of scripture. Time and time again, God's doing this. He chooses Abraham to be the father of Israel. Abraham is 100 years old and has no kids. How is he going to be the father of so many descendants that are as numerous as the, as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashores? The, the old guy with no kids that comes from a pagan family. That's who God chooses to be the father of Israel. Or, or as, the, as the family line continues, God chooses Jacob, who's the younger son to Esau and is less loved by his own father. God says, I want to use that one. Or Moses. Right, we're introduced to Moses. He's, he's scared. He's a murderer. He, 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 he seems to have like some kind of speech problem to where he's not confident in being able to talk before Pharaoh. And God says, no, 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 that's, that's my choice. That's the one I want to use. Or when the people go into Jericho, the one that God's chosen to actually protect his spies and, and, and bring victory to Israel through is a, is a prostitute named Rahab. That's the one that God chose to use. Or even when we get to the New Testament, we see the mother of the Messiah, Mary, the, the unmarried teenager from Nazareth. I mean, what's the equivalent of Nazareth? From Lakewood? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> The unimportant teenage, like that's the one God looks down and says, she's going to be the mother of the king of the universe incarnated. What? Or the disciples, all of them who are fishermen, which means that they are Torah school dropouts. They're not good enough to continue studying in the law and follow a rabbi. They're, they're, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors. Or Paul in the New Testament, who hates Jesus and hates Christians and is killing them. 
Yeah, that's going to be the one I choose to write most of the New Testament, which will live on as the word of God for centuries upon centuries. Like God just constantly chooses unlikely people. It's what he does. It's what he loves to do. And in addition to every one of those I mentioned, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you too are God's unlikely choice. You too are God's unlikely choice. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews, they demanded signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called or chosen, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly, worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul says there in 1 Corinthians is that the message of the gospel itself is unlikely to the world. It's considered foolish and stupid. It's not considered wisdom. It's considered folly. That a dying man on a cross is accomplishing salvation for the world. That sounds dumb. It's foolishness to those who don't believe. But to those whom God has called and God has chosen, he tells us, because of him, Jesus became wisdom to us. God chose to use a foolish message to shame the wise in the world. And it's not just the message that's unlikely. It's the people that God saves that are unlikely. They're not impressive. Even if the people God saves seem impressive on the outside to the world, inherent in the call of Christ and the surrender to Christ is this admission that we are not impressive. That we are weak and broken and sinful and wicked and compared to God, nothing, not worthy of anything. And so inherent in the draw to Christ, in the, in the surrender and the confession of Christ, all of his people admit themselves we are not impressive. We are nothing. We are weak. So in fact, if you think that you're a likely choice of God, you might not get the gospel. Because when we understand the gospel, we understand that no one is a likely choice. 
No one deserves God's choosing. But this is what God loves to do. He loves to put his grace and his majesty and his power on display. He loves to flip the wisdom of the world upside down. And the whole reason he does it, in the, at the end of 1 Corinthians, we saw it there, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The whole reason God does this is that you and I might boast in the Lord that we might find all of our confidence in the Lord, in His mercy, that it wasn't of me that I, that I belonged to Him. It wasn't of my own wisdom or my own effort that I'm saved. It was all by His mercy and by His grace, and that we might proclaim that boasting to anyone who will listen, that we would boast in the Lord. It's, it's meant to make you worship. God choosing you and you being an unlikely choice is literally meant to, right now, God, God is aiming to stir up your heart to kind of like pound on that hard heart that we have, to say like soften up and be stirred in your affections to worship me because you are not a likely choice. But he chose you. And that ought to draw something out of us to say, man, I'm not gonna boast in anything else but him. We're God's unlikely choice as well. And the reason why God's choices look unlikely to us is because God doesn't see like man sees. God doesn't see like man sees. In fact, no one sees. No one can see like God sees. No one. In every single moment of every single day as God is looking on every single human being in the world, He sees right through us. He is never once deceived. He is never once jumping to conclusions. He sees every thought, every fear, every hope, every anxiety, every doubt, every bit of anger, every bit of bitterness. He sees all of it with no hindrance in every person. That's why Psalm 139 says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You are well acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. God doesn't just see what we do. He sees why we do what we do. He sees everything about us. There is not one ounce of us that is hidden from him. In fact, he sees us better than we see us. He knows the depths of your heart, even if you'll never know them. But not only does he just see us, he even sees things that all, all around the world that we can't see. There's so much that God sees that we can't see. And so not only does God, it's individually able to look at each one of us and just see everything about us at all times, but he's also able to look at the, the expanse of the universes. Because I don't know, there's so much that he sees that we don't know about. He sees all of it happening. He even sees the things happening within our midst right now that we can't see. There's this amazing story in the book of First Kings, or Second Kings, sorry, Second Kings chapter 6. And there's this man named Elisha. And Elisha is a prophet and he trusts in the Lord. And Elisha's servant is, becomes really scared one day because they're facing a Syrian army that wants to take out Elisha. And this army comes and surrounds him. And his servant is terrified. 
And he comes to Elisha and he's freaking out. He's like, dude, like we can't, this is quote word for word, right? Dude, like what are we going to do? I'm freaking out, man. (laughs) He comes to Elisha and he's freaking out. And there's this amazing moment where Elisha turns to his servant and he says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You're kind of like, uh, is Elisha lost it? Like, what is he saying? There's no one with us. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He, w- he wasn't scared anymore. What Elisha seemingly saw or knew is in his life, even though he, people couldn't see this, the Lord was surrounding him with an army of angels. And so it didn't matter how big of an army was facing him, the hosts of heaven were with him. And if we could see it, we wouldn't be afraid. There is so much that God sees that we don't see, even right now in this moment. That if God could, would open our eyes to see what He sees, probably terrify us at certain times, may also fill us with confidence at other times. But there is so much happening that God sees that we don't see. And I read a moment like that, and I recognize, man, we are blinded by sin, and unless God opens our eyes to see like He does, we'll stay blind. And I read stories like that, and I just think, man, God, I want to see. I want to see stuff like that. I'm, I'm left longing to see like He sees. I have horrible uh, eyesight. I don't know if you know that about me. Uh, I wear contacts every day. If I don't, I could not function. I would have to hold this like right here about to, to, to read. I just, I'm blind. I can't see. And so I wear contacts every day. It's just kind of what I've done since I've been a, I've been a kid. But I hear these stories of this like magical thing that people do every once in a while where they go to this doctor and they take this laser and they shine it in your eye and they, and they fix your vision and you can leave seeing and I hear these stories that people tell me that they've done this. And anybody that has poor vision, here's like the one thing that you just long for every day of your life is to be able to wake up in the morning, sit up out of bed and be able to see. Not have to reach for a pair of glasses or reach for contacts and put them in, but to just wake up and see. I can't tell you how much I long for that. Like in my soul, I long to, to, to I just want to be able to see like without the aid of something else. And as we read stories like this, there should be an ache in us to want to see more, to want to see like God sees, to not just be satisfied with the way that we see now, but to to crave more. And the beauty is that the Spirit of God is actually longing to help us see better than we see now. He's actually really committed to that, to helping us see like God sees. Three ways in particular, and we'll, we'll kind of close up with that. Three ways in particular that the Spirit of God is committing to helping us see. One, He's helping, 
He's committed to helping us see Jesus like a God sees Jesus. The Spirit of God is committing to, committed to helping us see Jesus like he sees Jesus. Because the truth is we can't see Jesus initially until God opens our eyes to him. We could look and look and look and look and study and read the Gospels again and again and again and watch The Chosen and watch movies and, and just study and look on him as best as we can and look and look but never actually see him until the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see him and to see the beauty of who he is and what he's done. We can't see him unless God does that. There's nobody... Just think about the life of Jesus. There is nobody that would have looked on Jesus at his poor and lowly birth to an unmarried couple from Nazareth and thought, there he is. There's the savior of the world. Nobody would have looked at Jesus as he was dining at tables with prostitutes and tax collectors and just known sinners in the community and looked on him doing that and looked at him washing their feet and say, oh yeah, there's the king of the universe. That's what I thought he would be like. And there, there's no one that would have looked on Jesus on the road to the cross as he's carrying the cross on his back and he's being beaten and spit on and mocked and accused. No one would have looked at him in that moment and thought, there's our Messiah. Nobody would have looked at Jesus hanging naked from a criminal's cross. And on either side of him, two lowly criminals and thought, there's the Son of God taking away my sins. Not one person would have seen that on their own. And none of us would see that if it were not for the Spirit of God opening our eyes to see it. Which is exactly why Jesus is in this conversation. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, he's with the disciples and he asks them, who do people say I am? I've been alive for a while. I've been doing some miracles. Who do people say I am? And they start, you know, throwing out ideas. Like, well, some people say you're, you're, you're this. Some people say you're this. And then Jesus turns to questions. He's like, okay, how about you guys? Who do you say I am? And it's where Peter has this moment where he says, you're the Christ, you're the, you're, the, you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He tells Peter, the one who was walking with him, Peter, the fact that you can see that and confess that is not because you've looked on it and you figured it out. It's because the Father in heaven has revealed it to you and he's opened your eyes so that you can see it. And so for any of us that have seen Jesus and now believe, it's not because we just figured it out. It's because the Spirit of God opened your eyes. So now you can look on those moments that I mentioned in Jesus' life and all of a sudden you now see things you didn't see before. You see wrapped up in the foolishness of the cross the wisdom of God. The mysteries of the gospel are revealed to you. Not because there's some secret code that you just like sat down and you figured out the hieroglyphics and the invisible ink and no, the Spirit of God opened up what was actually plain, but was hidden because of sin. He's opened up your eyes so that you now see Him. 
The only way we're even initially able to see Jesus is by the Spirit opening our eyes, but the Spirit is also committed to continually and increasingly showing us Jesus. That He's actually committed to helping us see like He sees Jesus more and more and more every day. In fact, this is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. His prayer for the church in Ephesus and for all of us is that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, is what he says. That you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. And he's writing to already Christians who already see Jesus. He's saying, My, I'm praying that you have the eyes of your heart enlightened more because there's more of Jesus you haven't seen that you need to know the immeasurable greatness of his love and his power, the, the height and the, the breadth and the depth and the width of his love for us. We are always needing to see more and more of Jesus. It's actually the whole point of existence is that we would see him as he is. It's the culmination of time that when we stand before Jesus, First John tells us, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we are, He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The glory of heaven is that we will stand before Christ and we will see Him as He is. We will see Him perfectly with no hindrances. We will see everything, all of Him, all of His glory and His splendor. We will see Him as He is. And all along the way, the Spirit of God is showing us more and more and more, and more. And the more we see, the more we realize, oh my gosh, there's so much more I don't see. So let me ask you this. Are you satisfied with the depths at which you know Jesus? Are you satisfied with the depths at which you know Jesus? There is a temptation for us as Christians to think, I've got it. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know the gospel message. I know what God has done for me. I know he forgives me of all my sins. I know the mission of what he's called us to. I know the Bible generally. I kind of got Jesus. Are you satisfied with how well you know Jesus? Or do you want more? Do you want more of him? He is a bottomless ocean. Like literally the, the ocean that we have on our earth right now, we don't know it. Like are they, what do they say? We know like 10% of the ocean or something? Like the majority of the ocean we just haven't discovered and maybe never will discover. That's like a literal physical ocean like that God made. How, how much more unfathomable is the heart of Christ, is Jesus himself? And yet as Christians, we, we tend to look at him and we're like, yeah, I kind of got him figured out. He's unsearchable. We can never even come close. He's, he's infinite. He, like, we can't even measure how much we know him. There's so much to know of Christ. If you ever get bored of knowing Christ, I, I, I fear it's not Christ you're even knowing. Do you long to know more of him? If you do, here's the good news. He longs for you to know more of him. Won't you ask of him? Ask of him to help you know more of who he is. 
Yes, we, there's so much delight in the things we already know of Christ. We, we shall never depart from those or forsake them for greater things. But man, there should be a longing in us to know even more of the depths of the gospel and depths of the heart of Christ. So the Spirit's committed to helping us see like God sees in the fact of, in, of seeing Christ. He's also committed to helping us see ourselves like God sees us. Right? Samuel comes and he said, or God comes to Samuel and he says, don't look on the appearance. God looks at the heart. You as man, you're only able to see outward stuff, but God looks at the heart. For those that are not in Christ, that's really terrible news. Because it means that when God looks at any human being that's not a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter how cleaned up you are. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. God sees straight to the heart and knows it's full of wickedness. But for those that are in Christ, it's great news. Because it means that no matter how wicked you act, no matter how much sin you commit in your life, God sees straight to your heart, which is actually new and righteous. It was the promise of the new covenant. That's what Ezekiel chapter 36 says. The promise of the new covenant of God is that the Spirit of God will come and give you a new heart. This is a promise. This is not a, a, a command. It's not an attainment for you. It, it, this is a promise of what God will do in the new covenant of Christ, is that he will put his spirit inside of you. He will take your heart of stone and just put it in the dumpster and give you a heart of flesh, a new heart that is alive and moldable and soft and holy and righteous. So for the, for the Christian, it means that God looks at the heart. We tend to think, oh, shoot, that's bad news. That's actually good news for you. Because your heart is new. It's not old. You have been given a new heart. You don't achieve one throughout your life. You've been given one the moment you put your faith in Christ. So how do you view yourself? How do you look at yourself? How do you view your primary identity? Listen, I, like, get the, get the right answer out of here. I'm not interested in the correct answer. The real answer for how you actually view yourself. How do you view yourself? What do, what do you view your primary identity as? Is it, first and foremost, your identity is a sinner? Or do you view your primary identity, first and foremost, as a saint, which means holy? How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself primarily as, I'm a sinner, dirty sinner, just messed up and wicked and, and evil and just gross? Or do you view yourself primarily as holy and righteous and chosen and loved by God? There's a temptation for us as Christians to think, well, I know everyone is sinful, so therefore it's right for me to actually view myself primarily as a sinner. Church, that is wrong. That used to be your primary identity. It is no longer because you've been given a new heart, you are now loved and chosen by God. You are now viewed as righteous, not by anything you've done, but because God gave you a new heart. That he awoke in your eye, he opened your eyes to see Christ 
brought faith out of your heart, gave you a new one, you now have a new primary identity. You need to believe that because that's what God thinks when he sees you. And the Spirit of God is committed to helping us see us like he sees us. So how do you view your heart? Do you view your heart primarily as wicked and dirty? Or do you view it primarily as alive and filled with the Spirit? Much like Samuel comes to David here and he anoints his head with oil. What's interesting is we don't even know if anybody knows like what the anointing's for. Like, I don't even know if they, if they know. It doesn't tell us. Like, here comes Samuel. He's got his horn and he just dumped it on David. What the heck was that about? I mean, maybe they do. I don't know, but it doesn't tell us specifically. But he comes in and he anoints David and, and it, there, it's a symbolic gesture Anointing meant setting apart. That God is calling Samuel to anoint David as king, meaning he's called to, uh, to set David apart for the Lord. Like the Lord is coming to David and he's saying, this one is my choice. I am taking him. I'm setting him apart for myself. And the beauty of that is, church, you are God's anointed. If you have put your faith in Christ, it is the same for you. What Samuel does to David, the Spirit of God did to you. God looked at you and said, this one right here, I am taking and setting apart as my anointed. My, which is what holy means, set apart. My holy one, my anointed one. They are now belonging to me. I've set them aside for myself. That's, that's happens to you. And so it means that even though we may sin and sin a lot, that isn't you anymore. That actually doesn't come from the new heart that God's given you. So when we sin, we should be encouraged to, to remember that, that what, that's actually, that's not coming from who I am anymore. This is being influenced by, by the lies of the enemy or by the lies that I'm running back to, the old ones that I used to be so familiar with. This actually isn't coming from my new heart anymore. This is not who I am. Let me remember who I am and how God views me. He calls me righteous. He calls me set apart. He anointed me. I am his. I am loved. I'm filled with his spirit. That is who I am. Let me view myself as that even though I continue to struggle and sin. Because friends, if you view yourself as dirty and wicked and that's just primarily who you are, guess what? You will not run to Christ. You will run away from him. But if in those moments you view yourself as anointed, as his, you will run to him when you see your sin. Because you know, you'll know that when he looks at you, he knows, oh, that's not my son anymore. That's not my daughter. I paid for that. I don't know if you've ever had those people in your life that you've, that you've looked on and maybe it's, maybe it's, if you're a parent, maybe you've looked at your kids this way or maybe you've looked at a friend this way where you've just, you've looked at someone and you see so much in them, right? Like so much potential, so much giftedness and, and talent to, to do amazing things, but they're just not confident. You ever had a person like that in your life where you just look at them and you're like, ah, oh, man, if only you could know like, 
Everybody sees this about you. If you could just believe it, right? This like craving in us of like, man, if you could just see yourself like I see you, you'd go so far. Man, that's God's heart for you. If you could see you like God sees you, wow. Not because you're so amazing, but because he's chosen you. If you could see you the way he sees you, you'd never be afraid. You'd never be worried about what anybody thinks about you. There, there would be nothing that could come in your path that would make you anxious. You'd be so filled with confidence. That's what the Spirit of God is committing, committed to doing. So what would it look like if we actually believed what the Bible said about us is true? How much in our lives would change? The Spirit is also committed to helping us see others like God sees them. Jesus was such a master at this. There's story after story of Jesus just sees someone and he knows them in an instant. He sees right through their facades, asks the perfect question. Because here's the truth. Jesus knew this truth. I mean, he was God, but here's the truth. Every single person... I don't care how hard-hearted they are. I don't care how rough and tough and cold they look. Every single person is one good question away from weeping. I'm serious. Every person is one good question away from all the walls coming down and just weeping. All of us. Because in every one of us, there's so much brokenness and pain just right under the surface. And Jesus, Jesus knows us. He knew how to do this with people, to go in and ask that one question, to say that one thing that just pierced people. Because He sees people differently. And I'm sure many of us have had that experience to where we, we judge someone or we're angry at someone or we write them off and then we find out what's going on in their life and then we feel like, oh my gosh, I'm such a jerk. And we're filled with compassion because we see, oh my gosh, they're going through so much. Jesus sees that at every single moment. If we could see even a sliver of the way that he sees other people, we would have so much compassion. People are carrying so much shame and fear and regret and God's given us as his people. He's given us the gospel, which is the remedy to all those things. To be lifted, to be lightened, to see Christ as he is. He's given us the message by which God uses to open people's eyes, to see him. He's given that to us and yet we spend most of our time just walking around looking at people, writing them off. Ah, they're wicked. Wow, look at them. It'll take a miracle. It's always a miracle. Like, we would just write people off. We think we got them figured out. We got to put in a box We're like, nah, moving on, like not interested in them. If we could see them just with a sliver of the way that God sees them, we might walk around like Jesus to where he's drawn to the outcast. He's drawn to those where he just wants to ask them that one question. He wants to bring them the good news because he knows they're hurting. And as the church, we should be the people that are pursuing the spirit of God to say, God, help us see others the way you see them. Fill us with your compassion to actually love these people 
that should be our enemies. That's what drives us to take the gospel to them. So I think there's this invitation from the Lord today. Because he's revealed, he's, he reveals his heart to us in 1 Samuel 16 that this is what he's like. He sees like no one else sees. And he shows Samuel in this moment, here's how I view things. Here's the way that I see this David boy, this shepherd, this youngest, smallest, unimportant one. He's actually going to be the greatest king in all of Israel until Jesus. He shows Samuel a little sliver of here's how I see. And that's what the Spirit of God is committed to, to doing in our lives. And it's almost like there's just this invitation of, do you want to? Do you want to see more of how God sees? Do you want to see more of Jesus the way that God sees him? Do you want to see more of yourself the way that he sees you? Do you want to see more of the world and others the way that God does? Well, let's ask him. Let's, let's ask him. He loves to answer our prayers. He loves to get good, give good gifts to his children, especially when they, when they align with his heart and with his will. Because wrapped up in this is a desire to be more like Christ. That's what we want, right? That is, is that not the goal of, of, of even what the church is, that we would grow into the fullness of the stature and the measure of Christ? So as we close today, maybe there's one area in particular of those three I mentioned where God's just kind of pressing on you. I want to show you more of this. Let's ask of him. Let's ask of him. Let me pray for us. By Aaron and Karina on up. It's going to lead us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that like Samuel, you have chosen to show us a bit of how you see. And like David, we thank you that you have chosen us as your anointed ones, not because of our impressiveness, but just because you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that even right now in this very moment that you would bring worship from our hearts as we reflect on that. And God, would you draw us? God, we, we ask of you, help us see like you do. We want to see more of Jesus. Jesus, help us see. We, we want to see more of what our identity really is. Jesus, we, we, want to, we need your help to see others like you do. We want to be more like you, but we can't do it. We're dependent on you. And so, Lord, I pray that even now, this morning, you would pour out your spirit on us. That you would remove what is hindering us from seeing more. As we sing and as we worship, Lord, would you give us a greater glimpse of how you see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.